Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. I'm recording this in late June, a time when shows are hung, work is graded, and a really wonderful um, time when you can reflect on all the great things that have been done over the last year by our students and by our staff. And as things begin to quieten down, we begin to plan for the year ahead, we thought it might be good to stay in touch with you all with a series of additional podcasts that we release over the summer every month. In this episode, we are joined by the educator and the architect, Tony Fretton, who really needs no introduction. We speak about his views on the challenges facing students and young practitioners today, as well as the viewpoint from where he finds himself now and the potentials that arise in late practice, a kind of rich tradition in the history of architecture. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Tony, thanks very much for agreeing to chat. It's an, you know, it's an honour, actually. It's one of the things that um, I've kind of really enjoyed about kind of settling into Kingston, because you get to meet people yeah. that you know, I've only known for their work. And we've spoken a couple of times briefly at events where mm-hmm. you know, the Listen Gallery in particular for me, but actually for a lot of people from my generation in Ireland and elsewhere, was a kind of very significant piece. I was looking through the notebooks that Drawing Matter published, which I think is a brilliant initiative Good. yeah yeah that was interesting but we'll to carry on well it's just the, the 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 compression of thinking in that building i mean just the amount of of thought i mean it's obvious in the building as well but it's the notebooks make it really explicit that you really drilled through that thing i mean you thought about everything you know every aspect of it well i'll talk about that in a minute but first what i was i've got six cents for people and you're exactly the right person at the right time <laughs> And, and uh, Daniel, who was before you, has now taken the chair that I used to occupy at job, is exactly the right person. This is a great moment for architecture and education. Well, but to, answer your question, to answer your question before you blush, um, what strikes me about their um, sketchbooks is how long it took me to make decisions. And it was evident to me that in the Listen Gallery, um, I was having to make an architectural position up and that's why it took me so long. That's why I looked at things again and again. And there's a quote from that that I found in my sketchbooks which said, I draw the same thing again and again until it either makes sense or goes away. But what it, the really underlying uh, knowledge about that, those sketchbooks is how little I knew about architecture and how I had to make it up. So those two years of drawing sketches for a project is pretty crazy financially. We wouldn't do that now, but I had to build a position and that position was, I, well I just gave a lecture at the um, London Architect School of Architecture which talked about the beginnings of my practice and um, how I had a moment where I saw some performance and underst- and then became part of that uh, performance group and that what performance was doing is it was using, it, this was a moment of disillusion with architecture and but performance let me see it architecture differently because performance is using more or less the same mm. stuff as architecture, you know, people, rooms, um, situations. Uh, but it was um, doing what I had hoped to make architecture do, do which was to vocalise ideas. Because architecture can be can forget itself, it can become so concerned just with architectural issues. And yeah, of course we're concerned with social issues, but by this I, by what I'm saying, I mean the capacity of architecture to voice cultural ideas. Mm. It seems to me that architecture's role, or the way I define it, 
is that it has a, two polarities. On the one hand, it has to attempt to satisfy human need, which is a ferociously difficult thing to do, mm. but that's what you try to do. And on the other hand, at the, right, the other polarity has a duty to add to the visual knowledge in the society that we're in, which it does. I mean, because of its ubiquity, buildings play a major role in how people see the world and what sense they make of it. Yeah. The Baroque city impressed you in one way, the English arts and crafts in another way. You know, it's a great conveyor of ideas. They're kind of slow-moving ideas, but but they're great. I mean, Rome is um, slightly wrong to complain about how long it takes to make architecture. It is a slow profession. And the other, the other thing is, in my view, I mean, Rome is great. I have no argument with him. But he and Herzog Lillard's incessant desire to um, uh, be at the cutting edge um, is that's only one way to be. You know, I'm in another position where I'm a derriere guard, not avant-garde. You know, I collect things and put them in buildings. It's an interesting thing, though, because I've never really understood whether they are actually at the avant-garde or not. I, I'm not sure I would say that. Okay. I think, because it's an interesting problem when the quality that an architect is aspiring to is its newness. Yeah. Because that's the first thing to go, right? Um, and I wonder whether, I mean, I, I, I share your uh, scepticism with that kind of relentless, slightly ego-bound onwardness towards novelty. But I do see actually in both those practice, and maybe it's just because I'm getting sentimental, particularly in some of the recent Hurston and Demurin work, I kind of lost interest for a while over the last you know, 10 or 15 years. The last 100 years. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because it, it, our careers follow kind of complicated arcs and we need to follow certain aspects that we find interesting and sometimes that work is more or less interesting to the world, you know. Yeah. But it is, they do come up continually, both those architects, I think because their early work, and all their work actually, but their early work in particular is just so skillful and actually oh. not really concerned with newness or novelty in the sense that maybe perhaps in Rem's case but not 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 so much I don't know I, I, I think you're absolutely right I think they weren't concerned with newness they just had um, an intensity of vision which made their early work very delightful um, but you know the thing to say about newness having invaded against it in my time is now I accept that somebody has to do it That's architecture true. architecture can be a sort of craft of, of networking of ideas, but you need stylistic leadership, and, and quite often that stylistic leadership is um, obnoxious. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright is obnoxious, Le Corbusier is obnoxious. Yeah. We just went with the students to La Tourette, which of course I'd seen 20 years ago and thought, great, and this time I thought, it's disgusting, it's <laughs> right in your face. And one of my students, Catherine, who's very intelligent, said, He's a monster. I said, yeah, he is a monster. I mean, that, that's the issue. You know, you, you don't get things easily. And um, so people like that, who are stylistically, just make, they draw architecture along. But it's not the only thing that draws architecture along. It's not the only thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I keep quoting this some line from a W.H. Auden poem about the... It's called um, Musée de Beaux-Arts, where he describes seeing... Um, like a Bruegel painting of um, the nativity, and he says, um, I can't remember it properly, but he said, um, while the um, elderly were patiently and reverently, reverently waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children um, 
skating on a pond and a lot who don't who don't especially want it to happen and and I'd say I'm with those guys you know I'm with the iconic people that do all the other things in the world that don't necessarily want to be cutting edge you know and you can be radically um, you can be radical in other ways you know? mm. radicalness is uh, okay. artistic intensity that's radical yeah um, I mean for my part the work that I do currently and it makes enters for a long time I've been concerned with how you can um allow yourself to look backwards without being nostalgic, without being referential, without falling into the territory that postmodernism explored to its disaster. Um, how can you make an architecture which, I mean, without being too um, highfalutin, how can you make an architecture which, like human consciousness, has memories from the past and experience in the present? And I say, I've said this lots of times, that, that architecture um, apart from Luca Busio, did, who did understand history. Um, but fine art, painting, um, music and literature, and like, uh, Picasso would look at Velasquez and reuse it, and Joyce used the Ulysses myth as a construction and a means of personifying people to whom he then applied um, vernacular speech and my other things he mm. did, and Stravinsky in the Right, the spring used either used or somehow was informed by uh, Russian uh, folk music, as was Bartok. So there were plenty of modernists in other areas in architecture who were completely at home with um, dealing with history, and yet um, were would place those historical um, examples in contact with the amazing possibilities of their time, which of course were amazing in, in the modern movement. Mm. We don't have that amazingness now. We have something else, whatever that is. So it seems to me that, that you know, that's my argumentation for what I do. And it, for a long while I've been uneasy about things like the Red House, but I, they are what they are, you know. They, I look at them and I think maybe I should be less historicist. But so you're, yes, that's interesting, because the Red House is a project that I've never been to, but which I Which really, I'll take you to. I'd love to go. Yeah. But it's a project that we've really studied. Yeah. and really enjoyed and thoroughly kind of digested. Well, you must tell me what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. No, I'm serious. We thought it was really um, just extraordinarily accomplished in its understanding, as we saw it, of the making of a kind of ordinary civic faith. Yeah. And then the assembly of rooms in a thoughtful way, not bound by, say, historicism, yeah. but they're definitely rooms, and they have the qualities of rooms, but they have otherness as well to do with right. our contemporary age. And we found that all quite um, challenging, actually, because really? there was, yeah, because there's moments in the house where um, it, it, it walks a line where it, there's rigour, but there's also a human hand at work. Yes. There's interference, you know, there's grit in the, you know, there's dust on the record, if you know what I mean. It's not oh. a pure thing. And I think that's what we really enjoyed about it. We're, I think it takes a lot to get work which can be adulterated and be itself. I have, while I admire them, I have a problem with the kind of current kind of Swiss structural mannerist stuff, yes. which is, you know, it's a bit faddish actually it's in Switzerland and actually here in London actually for some reason it seems to be quite popular, I don't know why. Um, but that kind of self-contained logic system where it's just some piece of artifice, I find that really uninteresting actually. I find it much more challenging to do the thing that you're talking about, which is that you're absorbing stuff from the world and stuff from yourself, from your history, from the client and from the site and from the people you're making it with and somehow 
this thing comes out of it yes. and it somehow captures all of those kind of conversations in a way I mean I see Palladio there I see other things there I yeah. see yeah. Um, all the things I've seen I wanted to put in a building I put where they could fit yeah and Picasso said um, if I like apples and well this is probably improper if I like apples and ladies I put them in I put them in my paintings he put whatever he felt for at the time into his work and uh if you can do that in a way that looks outward with some ambition that it, the uh, building that results can be accessible to other people, then it seems to me to be right. Yeah. And who are you looking at at the moment? Or what are you... Ooh, that's a good question. I was going to say something about Red House. Um, firstly, I accept other people's interpretations of my work and they're not wrong. And there was an interesting moment on... Twitter, where some students had seen a lecture of mine in Venice, and I'd shown them um, a building we did in central Copenhagen, which was kind of more or less successful. And um, Eamon Caniff, who teaches at, at um, Manchester, tweeted, it, that, that's right, the, the student said that I'd made a proposition that it was open to interpretation. He said, yes to me, it looks like a car park. You know? <laughs> and there was a kind of furore from the side and I said no I can't make that statement it's open to interpretation and reject an interpretation like that which which seemed the right you know I think um, it's a people some people hate your buildings too there was a neighbor who was walking by the red house and we were photographing it and I said um, did he like it I was being provocative because I knew he hated it because he made a kind of cross finger cross sign against it and I said he said no it's like Lenin's mausoleum and I actually I went to Moscow maybe a year ago and he was absolutely right it's exactly like Lens Muslim Lens Muslim's not bad really no. so uh, <laughs> I don't care you know I think you make things and then other people make sense of them and this is in a way at the heart of the proposition of the Red House which is that it has some recognisable histori- historical elements from lots of different periods from Mies and, and Palladio and yet they never, I, they never, I never um, uh, concluded them within the stylistic terms that, of the style. I'm not putting this very well. Yeah. So that they maintain ambiguity. So it's both familiar and ambiguous, which one hopes makes it available to interpretation by other people. Yeah. But I think also I'm, I've got an ability to make spaces that people like to be in. It's turned out that there's two things I'm good at. One is facade making, I'm told. And the other is um, kind of homeliness, gazellekeit, mm. as they say in Dutch, or higa in um, Denmark, you know, and kind of make cosy spaces. And some people would disagree with this, but people like being in the spaces I make. And that's something you can't really explain. You yeah. really can't get there. I mean, you try to, as a teacher, you try to think through as much as you can about your own position, but there are certain parts of it, they, they, they won't give themselves up and neither should you expect them to if they won't. Yeah. Talk about something else. Now that's interesting. It's this thing where um, the... Uh, I mean, the thing itself, the artefact itself, is always going to be more complex than any of us uh, think it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons that astute critics are so important, you know, writers who can yeah. see. Um, I mean, we... We've all, we know if a number of people have wrote about our work, but one in particular, Alice Woodman, kind of wrote a piece about the quarry houses. And in it, there was a couple of lines which were just brilliantly insightful and kind of allowed us to see something that we hadn't seen before. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, there is a lot of writing about architecture now, probably more than ever before, like blogs and Twitter and this kind of stuff. Mm. I mean, do you see a kind of new type of criticism emerging? Because you're active in these fields, you tweet, you get involved in this. Mm. Um, or I, I slightly feel a bit of a of a loss, actually, of a certain type of critical writing. There is a loss. There's very little criticism, such as you describe as Ellis. I mean, there are a lot of uh, architectural theorists now, and um, there's a tendency for them in Britain to become involved in the university system, which makes them run sort of research treadmill. So, yeah. people who um, in a way, are outside that, which Ellis is, but and people like Ellis who trained as an architect but then made a choice to do other things, they're invaluable. Mm. Alan Cahoon was like that, and Alan had built buildings, and he's um, but it, that didn't make him brilliant, he just was brilliant. And um, you know, whatever he wrote um, made a uh, sense of uh, the issues that practitioners face all the time, or intelligent practitioners. That's rare. That's really rare in any generation to find that. Um, so no, I don't. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it's a risky thing to do. I see a lot of people telling me what they think something is about. Do you know what I mean? Where they try and wheel out their their political position or their aesthetic position, and very few people seem declarative about what it is because yeah. that is putting their sight at risk. And actually, I see it everywhere. I see it in crits. It's a lot of kind of fluffy conversation in crits. Very few people putting their judgment on the line publicly in front of the student, risking, you know, it being exposed as being either positive or negative. And I think that's that's a kind of loss to the discipline. It's this kind of... Well, I think it's not life. I mean, interestingly, designers are fantastically resilient and they just carry on designing. I think what I'd say in response to what you've said is that, that design as a practice is a great um, creative knowledge and craft and it's because of the tendency in uh, theory departments of architecture schools for the last 30 years through the influence of um, East Coast architectural theorists, theorism, theorism, if you could say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're saying it. That theoretistic as in scientistic. Yeah. Um, it's become possible to to talk about buildings, um, you know, as you would, as you'd say, well, you know, I like its greenness, and what do you do the corners for, and what's the greater meaning in here? And, and in a way, architects also have a problem with that. They often can't vocalise their ideas. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's... There's no kind of uh, particular lack of... Critics. I mean, there are good, good young, young critics, writers like Irina Davidovich, who's, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, who's kind of getting very good. She's a friend of mine, Irina, if you're listening. <laughs> keep going. And, um, uh, and she writes uh, kind of issue-based. You know, she does what good theoreticians do. They find an aspect of, of practice which, in which they, want to, to, which they want to illuminate. And they do. It's interesting, she was a good friend of Alan's in these last days. Mm. And um, That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there, there will always be people. It's just there are never many. I mean, we think of, of um, there being a golden day when Pevner and, um, you know, my mind's going, who was the um, teacher with the beard who wrote um, 
uh, Rain of Bannum. Oh, Bannum, yeah, yeah. Bannum, yeah. And the, 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 there was a moment when that already existed, but it was quite rare. I mean, it didn't. So you, you get there are moments like that in history where things happen, like, for example, the Nine Age Gallery and Magazine, which was fantastically important, then nothing, and now Ellis's Architecture Foundation. Yeah. It, it's. That's how life is. There's no consistency. Well, in the UK, there isn't. It's for me. It's something to do with the fact that I think the nature of practice is very different now, and so I think there is a lot more people writing about architecture. And I kind of think that yes, these people have always been rare historically, and yes, Finstons Arena is magnificent, and the book in particular is really brilliant piece mm-hmm. of work. Um, and. And and it's more to say more more other more people because there's a lot more people writing I think but there's very few of them kind of interested in seeing. But there are a lot more people making architecture and a lot of them are not interesting. I mean, it's. But I think it's symbiotically linked because the 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 field of practice is much more pluralistic now. It is a very fragmented kind of and I think positively so. uh, kind of medium now. I mean, the, the, we cannot differentiate ourselves because my buildings say look different from yours, and let's have a fight and an argument about which one's better because that's kind of redundant, right? We have to become much more adept at kind of getting to the deep thinking behind the work and learning to appreciate each other's work on a, on a more fundamental level. And I do think that that, in a more pluralistic discourse, there 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 is the necessity for a kind of greater critical armature to support all that because you get a lot of very thin work, you know, a lot of very faddish copyist work by people who are actually very skilled but in the churn of kind of fashion and getting work it's it, it kind of dilutes something which is a rich territory and could be richer and it's really that that I'm kind of saying. Yeah well let's, let's talk about this I mean I think what you said is very brilliant and insightful but there's in any in any group of architects only a small number have real talent to be an individual designers and in that group only a small percentage of those will say something original, exceptionally, and doesn't negate everybody else. No. Just that's how it is. And you have given up lamenting the lack of things. You know, they. In fact, actually, I gave a lecture in um, Faith House putting that we did in Dorset ages ago, and um, I said, and it, there were local architects, and I said, all architects matter. You know, everybody who's sincere and wants to do something good matters in the fabric of society. People caring matter. And I said that because the the culture of celebrity, which wasn't created by architects, it was what was visited on them, yeah. has corrupted that, our ability to um, see different levels of skill and different layers of interest as, as interesting. I mean, it, it's a part of polarization or ad- atomization of society which comes about through neoliberalism and you know, the sorting of people into useful and non-useful and I'm against that I don't think you know when I teach I don't I, I try to teach everybody what they could know that would make their talent come forward and some of the people you teach I now know having seen them go into offices where they're not it's not particularly progressive but they do good work in their own way and um that seems to me to be a a good way to think, and maybe it's a bad way to think. That I think it's no, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that's just it's it's so true, and I think we suffer because of this kind of authorship thing. I suppose. Oh. I mean, I remember uh, an interview um, 
that we were doing for in a previous school I worked in to admit a student into the master's programme and it was myself and Professor Michael McGarry interviewing the student and I was a young teacher. Um, and this student, she was kind of upset because in her year out she'd worked for you know, a really rather problematic practice doing really rather problematic work and she was upset to be kind of taking us through that and the work before that in her undergraduate was yeah. with Richard and Michael just said you know whatever room you find yourself in you have to make sure the room is different for your presence in it as an architect and that's your duty and whether that's you know as a junior member of a team doing work that you might have a problem with but you know even changing a door even <coughs> changing a window subtly can make improvements to something that otherwise would be missed and I also think that we don't do ourselves any service by kind of marginalising whole sections of what have become confusingly termed commercial practice. Yeah. Um, because that's also a kind of misnomer. I mean, I see it in the, I see it the opposite direction too, where I did my uh, PhD viva on the work of the practice in Barcelona and somebody who was there who was a director of quite a large you know, London um, practice uh, said, you know, it's wonderful for you guys in Ireland, kind of wallowing in your <laughs> the luxury of your small projects, and Get you know, out of here. and we were just kind of saying, but actually, that comes from a depression that the country's been in. Yeah. You know, you take the phone rings, you answer the call. And I do wonder about that that gap between designers or kind of critical practitioners, and the, the terminology becomes more complicated, and commercial architects. I mean, you've always been very clear that architecture is a livelihood that it's a business oh, yeah. that it needs to make sense that you treat your staff well I mean is that something that you developed or is that something that happened at the start how did you develop that well I mean my partners are, are like me I mean they um, have a sense of social justice and I never wanted to have an office I would hate the idea of an office where people were terrified or their life was made of misery mm. You know, we think you should help young architects develop, and um, you have a duty to mature talent. But we don't take recent graduates because we can't actually have the time to develop. And yeah. It's interesting. A, a colleague of mine, my technical teacher, who works at a major London practice that does widespread work, and if you don't, <laughs> who are good, um, said, "Well." You know, we because they, obviously because they need lots of people that they're always rowing. Um, they take recent graduates, and he said he spends a lot of time educating them how to do things. We, at the kind of practice we run, we can't do that. You know, I fulfil my duty by teaching, as does David Owen. He teaches at Kingston, as you know. Yeah. yeah. Jim occasionally does rather surly um, um, crits and <laughs> comes back and says he never wants to teach again. <laughs> But where was I going on this one? I was, um, um, actually, I have a particular bee in my bonnet, which is that I think that, you know, having taught another school in London, which is um, not far from City Airport, um, that I see a lot of students there who have... And they're taught as if they're going to be designers, and they're taught in a rather, uh, I don't know, non-practical way. And I listen to them, and I think... This is a terrible disservice because they're going to end up in awful offices. And I said, why don't you run a technician's course? Because at Daft, or as a professor, it was completely proper for somebody to decide that they would be a, they would graduate in project management within the architecture faculty, or they would uh, become a construction architect. When we worked with um, 
executive offices, it's primarily um, technical architects, and they're great because they don't have design ambitions, but they have incredible skill. You know, they're built forever. They can advise you on what you can and can't do. And they're a huge asset, but we don't produce them in the UK. Yeah, I kind of wonder, is it not easier for the teachers in that in those sorts of schools to produce work which is, in inverted commas, interesting? Yeah. Because that's all very superficial and you can kind of trot out this thing of being radical or somehow being that other people can't handle it because they're reactionary or something. Whereas actually, I'm, I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think there's an ego-driven thing to do with... Um, you know, people who want to practice more and who didn't. And I think and there's some of that, but I, I, I'll say that there's the colleagues at um, University of East London, which is I'm describing, are fantastically committed. Oh, I wasn't talking about that. Yeah. Oh. A different school. Sorry, a different school. Well, yeah. this is what I was talking about. You yeah. are fantastically committed and not, they, not as you describe it, but somehow conception of the school, I, I question. I mean, I can't have any effect on it. It's I can in some ways, but but this is a general issue. I think it. You know, for example, those students who uh, come to um, bachelors and discover that their interests don't lie in design could be given um, courses and graduate education possibilities, such as I've described, and they would enrich practice. And that's what they do anyway. I, mean, I know completely. Yeah, yeah they are, they go off and they become associates and. And or some of them become writers, and we should recognise that. We should, we should, as educators, if we could, we should set that up as a possibility. Yeah, one of the things that because Kingston has a very, as all of London does, uh, you know, a rich and varied uh, cultural makeup among the students, and obviously architecture broadly as a discipline doesn't. One of the things that we observe is that you know if people aren't from a kind of middle class or upper-middle-class background. Um, Actually, it's part of the duty of the school to expose them to the kind of social structure of architecture that, you know, you bring people... So we're setting up an alumni network where our graduates who are three years out or ten years out, they come back and... Oh, that's tremendously good. They present what they're doing, yeah, yeah. Because it kind of then... If you're in there and you're a second year and, okay, there's no professionals in your family, Yes. There is a series of people that you can pick up the phone to or email. Yes. And actually, a lot of the time, it's just knowing the right person to ask the question. Absolutely. Of. Or even knowing that you can answer those questions. You know, I've, I remember what it was like to go to architect school. I mean, my parents were um, um, abled, enabled working class people. And um, I, I had to learn all of that stuff about middle class attitudes and the ability to take time in doing things. and to understand that, that it wasn't wrong to spend several days thinking about a door handle or something like that. That I had to learn. And I had a conversation with one of my students who's, I like a lot, and um, he's a saxophone player. And I said, when you graduate, don't go back into a bad office. Please don't. Go to a good office. You know, mm. you need to break a habit here. Mm. And I said, do you mind me asking about this? But it seems to me that people of um, working class people, white working class people and working class people and ethnicities, just like when I was a kid, they have to somehow break through their own sense of inferiority. And it's not something that's... Middle class people don't do that to people, maybe a bit, but it's somehow it's... 
built into the society. It's structural. It's definitely it is structural. It is. And I think that in architecture, it's not really helped by young practitioners being disingenuous about how they manage to set up their practice. Because yeah. in architecture, yeah. the myth is everybody's super talented and everybody's kind of socially good and aware. Now, the truth of it is that some people have wealthy parents, and yeah. that's fantastic, and it allows them to do good work, and they don't... No, they should be taxed. Well, <laughs> true, but also I don't <laughs> see I don't see why they don't make that ex- I don't see why they don't make that explicit. I think yeah. that, like for instance, in our case, although neither me and my partner were from um, anyway like a well-off background, mm-hmm. you know, a family member, my uncle, gave us a commission. That's mm-hmm. how the practice started. It would not have happened without yeah. that, yeah. and we're not diminished by the fact that that was a gift of sorts. Yeah. And I, I do think that it's a problem because it produces this situation whereby the students are being told by a whole generation of architects that this is a purely meritocratic landscape, and it is not. No, it's a business. You've got to learn things. I mean, I, when I teach, I, you, I explain that you don't get work by talent. You get work by luck, and if you're lucky, um, and sociability and... Um, the one thing that is interesting about architecture, which I didn't understand before as a student, was that if you do manage to get something small made, and if it is interesting, architecture is probably one of the most generous cultural disciplines around. Yes. Yeah. Because people are genuinely just pleased that there's something in the world that they're interested in. And they kind of open doors for you in a way that you don't even know this is happening in rooms all around the city or all around the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm here in London through actions which I don't fully know. You know, people, you know eventually you come across... It's an enormous conspiracy. <laughs> in a really wonderful way. In a wonderful way. But, you know, in a, in a kind of... Of course, there's, a, there's the most recent thing, which is obvious. But there's all the precursor decisions before that. People who invited us to do things, asked us over to do things. Yeah. That kind of generosity of the discipline, I think, is something that, again we should be prouder of, actually. I think there is this gap about how you get going and how you might do work that's meaningful in a practice and all that kind of stuff. But actually, if you get past those first seven or eight years, it begins to move in a different way. There's a lot of pushing the boulder off the, up the hill, but am I right about that? No, you're absolutely right. And I think as an ed- for you to say that as an educator is very, very good. And for us to put this on a, a podcast is very, very good. Uh, because it's interesting that, and I feel now somehow that I've done you a disservice because no. I've only talked about two reasonably early pieces of work. Oh, don't worry about that. This is another good thing about architecture. You know, the, you know, the, the, the difficult second album or the great first album or whatever those things in music where mm-hmm. kind of everything has to be at that level in the music industry. It doesn't happen in architecture where actually there's room for variance and discrepancies and moving away. And say you yourself would have a kind of ambivalent relationship to a piece of work that I'd say I would, for instance, value very highly and that's not a problem Mm -hmm. and it seems to me now because you're doing I mean and you have in the past but you are doing work of significant scale now I mean the housing projects in particular and at a very large urban scale um, well not very large I mean it's 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 (laughs) scale of an embassy but uh, well I'll ask you a question do you still see interest in the work that we do now that you did in the early work because that's always uh, yeah I'm really interested in now I mean at the moment we're sitting at a table in Tony's office and there's some shuttering samples for some work that's going to be happening in Switzerland and I'm really interested in those mm-hmm. but I have looked at the uh, projects in Holland the facades of those the yeah. tower isn't it it's like uh, in a we did two in Antwerp in Antwerp sorry yeah. apologies I had the address wrong and I was looking at those in some depth so yeah and I'm really interested in that trying to find um, 
a kind of language which is iterative and civic, but also has room for, um, maybe it's the wrong word, gesture or something yeah. else. No, you it. have to have gesture, otherwise it's, you know, the minimalist um, artists understood that you can't just put bricks on the floor, you have to theatricalise them, which is what critics understood about them. You have to have gesture and along with all sorts of other things. Architecture relies on gesture. Yeah. The more you can get in, the more pleasure you can get in, the better. I mean, if there's one concern I have, it's the work I make is rather more austere than my, the things I like. And that's, you know, as a designer, there are lots of things that you do and you're not, you don't know why you do them, you know. And, um, it just comes out that way. Pardon? It just comes out that yeah, way. Yeah, but you know, in a way, if you drive, I'm very driven, as you can see, and like all designers, you, nothing leaves the surface until it's what I want, until I think it's good enough. And, and yet, you know, then you look at past projects and you think two, I think two things. One is that there are some very good things in them, and then there are some things which I wish I'd done in a different way, and that, that will be for some future project. Yeah. But I've got, I'm in an interesting phase now. I'm in the kind of the later period of my practice. It may sound strange because I somehow have an association with younger architects, but I'm, you know, I'm an age now where I'm, uh, something else could happen, like Leverins, or mm. it's a very interesting possibility for me that, that another kind of architecture could occur, which would be much less, um, uh, much freer and yet much more affecting. Yeah, and the, the towers. What I when I build something, it for a long while afterwards, I think, what did I say here? I, and I, one thing I would stress is that what I've ever written about uh, the buildings I've made is always written afterwards. You know, I make the buildings and then I experience them, and then sometime later, I can say things about them which I think are a form of architectural knowledge. And, I'm just beginning to be able to do that with um, Dancer, this project for a town hall in Belgium, and um, the towers in Westkai in Antwerp. And um, what I said is that uh, the war drawings of um, uh, Solowit interested me mm. uh, through the fact that they were made by a series of instructions. But you can't apply that to architecture because although architecture is made according to a set of instructions, those people that make the LeWitt work are um, competent artists who love LeWitt and want to do their best. The construction <laughs> industry is for the people working under duress for a living, you know, for whom it's just a job. So let's say, the, what's, let me ask the question rhetorically, what's the relationship between my interest in LeWitt's war drawings and what I want to do? And it's a sort of inductive process and what comes out the other end in architecture is what I've called rather inelegantly plain directness which is in the towers it's to make a series of extremely simple moves um, for reasons I don't fully understand with the hope that because they're towers they'll have some associative value for people in the um, in the city now whether that's true or not I don't know but um, it may not work out that way and maybe they need to be more overt for that last part of the desire to be um, become real well it's interesting that I was um, reading a, a book recently they were talking about why culture exists which I suppose is an obvious thing but you know these elemental questions are yeah. interesting why what we do the gap between the barest pragmatic delivery of accommodation for instance and what we call architecture that envelope is the territory, the cultural territory of our world. 
And, you know, this person was talking about opera and he was talking about other things. And one of the things that he said, which I think resonated with me, was that things like the built environment or, say, an opera or something like that, where in the first time you see them as whatever, a child or a young adolescent or something, they're clearly so complex. They're clearly so... uh, Or, you know, they're so constructed that they clearly are the product of a culture that's outlasted a single human life. And that actually these kind of cultural acts of built environment, probably foremost among them, act to instill in a kind of everybody in society an understanding before it's made explicit, before it's, it's maybe even sometimes pre-verbal, right. that you are in a continuum of thinking. Yes. And that this is going to be, this is something that is how human knowledge advances itself. And that culture acts in a way as an evolutionary service to instill that kind of social knowledge ability in all of us very early on. Now, it suits me, right, because I'm looking for someone to say something like that. But I think it's what you're saying about, you know, the buildings in the city that you make, you leave your mark on those things and they become part of this conversation, this incredible complexity of human thinking, this yeah. abrasion between ideal and real, between this kind of building industry, and your client and all those sorts of things. And the fact that it becomes a repository of knowledge of a certain type, open to interpretation, is fantastic. It is a great... And actually, it's interesting because you mentioned reverence, and those late buildings are so hard for people to write well about. Really? Oh, you mean to write with... Yeah, uh, people... There are a lot of sympathetic... Sympathetic, but I don't think... You mean interpretive in an illuminating way? I think that they are... They're, they are what they are, aren't they? That's, that's, I absolutely agree with you, and that's what makes them so interesting, because yeah. they can't be... Uh, interpreted well interpretation never exhausts a piece of work but the fact that they don't stimulate um, interpretation is very very interesting because you know, that's, that's very good you point that out because I'd never thought that about Leverance <laughs> although Colin my business partner has yeah. a take uh, on the you know the, the Resurrection Chapel in particular with the pilasters this kind of 10 mil off the wall, 12 mil, this meniscus of the wall and the thickness of the glass in the late works. <clears throat> yeah. There's a kind of surface tension, which I find interesting and does make sense to me, but the, the attitude to the brick is fantastic and bizarre. And yeah, I mean, it's, why would you do it? And why would you take a hammer and hit the work that the um, ironmonger made and um, blacksmiths made? And he was working highly instinctually but from uh, from what I judge an, a very very rich inner world yeah they yeah. said uh, there was a saying I, I read that um, Leverance could spend an hour looking at a nail and thinking what he could do with it <laughs> and he somehow he, he he interrogated building materials he didn't look anywhere else he didn't he didn't want to be an artist he he was uh, totally focused on the capacity of building materials to say and do it's but we don't know what they're saying you know and we see what they're doing we don't know what they're, say- what they're saying and he wasn't even designed silly he wasn't even pious he wasn't an observant christian so i think what that's really exciting you know because in the um landscaping in the um uh, the woodland cemetery it strikes me as it's sort of um image of paganism mm. you know the, the response to the question of how you would make a, what Im- imagery uh, would be made for a, what effectively was a multicultural society then for people of different faiths and he appealed to a sort of 
Viking feeling is extraordinary. And um, and it's interesting when I think about that and think about Khan, you know, Khan's ability to um, infer ancientness in his building, but without any imitative um, on his part is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, they're really special architects. They they're really, really. I think, I think Khan's more talented than Le Corbusier in a way. Yeah, Le Corbusier was prolific, and and the early work is fantastic. But I think Khan, if you want real depth, if you want architecture that really is enduring, it's Khan. It's interesting because there are times that I wish Khan didn't write. Well, you have to ignore that. But I saw, it's interesting. I saw a video of him talking to students at, where did he teach? Penn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, I asked the Brit what it wanted to be. And when he said it to the students, uncannily, it made sense, you know, it was extraordinary. Um, I think he, I mean, he did some pseudo, but I think, well, I have a particular discipline that I follow, a, a faith system, which, um, well, it's, it's Buddhism, I'm a Buddhist, oh, I studied right. Zen, and um, Zen masters that I've studied with, um, I like that, they they make ridiculous statements, but to um, people who um, are ready to receive their inner message, they're very great statements. Oh, that's interesting. So Well, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed, to, when I saw Khan talking, I thought, well, yeah, you know, he was communicating something. No, definitely. So, so it's, a, it's a meditative thing as opposed to sometimes a dogma where it's misinterpreted as such, you know. Because it, it, equally with leverance, you know, the, and I've heard people, you know, kind of trotting out the thing about, oh, you know, almost as if it's a mystical act that the bricks weren't cut. Which to me, it just seems to be a really practical way of talking to a bricklayer to achieve an effect. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of you know, it, 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 it's a clever technique to achieve an effect, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the technique is only valuable to deliver the effect. The technique is not the effect. Oh, that's really, that's really astute of you to say that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I'd always wondered why he did that, and I wondered if bricklayers would be affronted by it, you know, after years of lining up their pens to be told it didn't matter. I think it was his way of, of talking to these people and explaining to them that the wall had to weave that you couldn't, that this was not, this was not the standard matrix, this was a different way of thinking about brick. But I don't think for any higher reason, that's just me, to me it seems like... No, a well, I go, so I'm going to go back to the point you made, which is that it was a technique, yeah. and I'm going to extend that to say, to do something he liked the look of and thought had ar- architectural power. Yeah. And that's very, a really astute observation on your part. <laughs> no, no, really. This is. Uh, I don't know if it's actually my observation now. I have to say because it's one of those things that comes up in conversation, and maybe it's columns. Actually, it's one of those things where we talk about those buildings okay. in this sort of way. Or whoever devised it. Yeah, I must find them out and thank them. It's like Tony says, you're astute. Tony, I've really enjoyed talking to you, but you have um, given me an awful lot of your time. We generally wrap sure. up these mm-hmm. interviews with a question, which is just that if you had some advice to give students embarking on architectural education today, uh, what would it be? Ask yourself if you've got the commitment to either work as in an architect's office in a subsidiary capacity and enjoy it, or whether you've got the desire to be something more than that, and recognise that it's a profession that uh, but the remuneration can often be rather low, and the time that's involved in doing it can be rather long. And the insecurities in the earlier stage uh, can be uh, 
rather great. Um, and that's not to be negative, it's to be realistic. In the spirit of the conversation that we've had about this podcast maybe having some value to um, the students in your school or other people who may listen to them, that's, that's how it is. And uh, some young practitioners have understood that and go faster, you know, with varying results, but they do. Um, but uh, the other thing is, of course, it's one of the great practices. Mm. It's and it, in a way because it's curiously uh, uncommercial mm. in, in its spirit. Because it's a profession, that's what makes it great. And the last thing to say here is that professions, are, I've got. A, supremely important role in society because they you when you work as a professional you yes you represent the interests of your client but automatically you fit that into a broader idea of justice to society mm. and that's what makes professions unique there are certain uh, roles in society that uh, current um, uh, philosophies or dogmas want to squash down. One is professionalism, because the right wants to somehow commercialise it, mm. and that's a complete misunderstanding. You need people who are beyond, between public service and commerce. But the other is education. The professor at had a, it, it came into being in order that um, knowledge could be made, scientific knowledge could be made, without interference from the church or state. Mm. And that independence was very, very important. And we are now in a situation in education where governments and uh, vice chancellors don't understand that. They see education as business, uh, and you know, there's some justification in that, but they shouldn't forget the role that um, education has in producing knowledge without it being wanted. Mm. Foster didn't think, now I'm going to, eventually I'm going to build Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Uh, where do I start? He started like we all started, building small things, and then he became what he was. And that's the nature of architecture, it's sort of mystery. And educators, uh, well not educators such as you or I, but kind of educational managers, if they forget that, then the consequences are very severe. Yeah. But I'll say this, in my experience, architecture students, in all the time I've been teaching, which is since the mid-70s, have hardly changed at all. They're always humanists. Mm. They're always committed to an idea of making society better. They've always had a certain dress style. They've always had a certain personal style. Um, I love them, you know, because they're irreducibly humanistic mm. and they care. Mm. So that's what I would say to students. Yeah. You're yeah. like that already. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just keep plugging away. Yeah. yeah. Tony, thank you so much. Pleasure. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Do remember to subscribe and leave comments and reviews, and I look forward to you joining us in our next edition. Thank you.